Welcome to the Beyond Listening podcast. I'm excited today to welcome in a dear colleague, someone who, when I first met, their story resounded in all the bones of my body. And uh, I'm excited that she's here today to share her story. Michelle Duval, welcome. It's fantastic to have you here today. I want to actually leave you the opportunity to, before we begin the questioning, to give us a kind of pricey of your work in the world. Wow. Well, hi, Miriam, and hi, Adam, and hi, everybody listening in. It's a real delight and pleasure to be here together today. Um, an introduction into the pricey of my work. Um, well, I, I guess at the core and the essence of it, I think about my work as um, being a servant, ironically. Um, my career kind of emerged. I studied um, hotel management and ended up working in, you know, hotels. And I had the honour um, of, you know, serving all sorts of people in some various different roles that I had, um, which led me into this kind of moment in my life where I had relocated to live in Singapore and I ended up very, very ill and I came to this calling and this realisation that my work was to help people to learn in different ways about themselves. And I kind of think of my work about as about raising consciousness. Um, and it's taken various different expressions in that servant kind of role um, and predominantly it's about facilitating people to hear and understand themselves all of each other and through that process being able to grow and develop and uh, sort of the label that I kind of gave that early on was the role of being a professional coach and so I've helped to contribute to a, an emergent field which was over 20 years ago now which became kind of the field of professional coaching and um, in more recent years I, I felt really deeply passionately that and this is my career, that I, in, when I was working at deluxe five-star hotels, I, I was hosting and meeting the world's most elite people who had were sports athletes, people who were politicians, people who were actors, producers, business people, and they were the most successful in their fields. And the roles that I had meant that I got to know them in a very unplugged environment and got to witness them raw and um, vulnerable and, um, you know, away from the limelight. And then as a professional coach, I ended up working again with the world's elite in, the, in various different domains, but this time as a professional coach, facilitating their growth and their development. And the thing that irked me the most in the hotel and working with you know, these very successful people as a professional coach is that everybody else in the population deserves to have the same access to develop their consciousness, to grow, to develop, um, to self-actualize, to uh, develop their talents. And so more recently, I've ended up um, building out some technology and building a technology company with the mission to democratise coaching and to make uh, growth and development accessible and available to everybody. So we've launched a technology platform that um, is based on artificial intelligence that um, and we've launched the world's first artificial intelligent coach. Um, and it's all free and it makes coaching and the facilitation of learning about yourself and others completely free. So that's a little bit of that journey. Um, but at heart, I think of my work about 
facilitating as a servant others to realize who they fully are. God, that's that was said so much better than I would. I knew that would be the case. <laughs> I I um I want to add just one extra little bit from how I know you as well, which is that uh, even the reason I asked you for that is because I think that what I have noticed in is that you are also a, a master storyteller, and you've also done public speaking and told your story and told that story many times. As an example of someone who can and and stories which can assist people moving through difficulty um, to enable them to move beyond it and actually even use that difficulty um, to kind of power up their lives um, and and so I just that's also something that that was really strong when I first met you um, and you'll see many talks with Michelle online so check them out. Um, Thanks, Mary. We start our questioning by going back to origin stories. So asking with, with that essence that you just captured and that calling, if you track back to your childhood, can you think of any of the threads that were there then um, in, in those childhood years, the threads that kind of led you to this? Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I, I think if I don't like classifications and I certainly don't like personality classifications, but I'm about to use one. Um, if if there was a continuum towards extroversion or introversion, interestingly, I, I, I kind of in, am in the middle, but I'm more so towards the side of introversion. And um, so in my early kind of relationships with friends and so on, I... I, I, I'd had a lot of sort of early trauma in my life, um, in my family and, and also from some significant events that happened to me as a young child. Um, and, I, and I was deeply um, private about them. I did, for some reason, had this coding that I didn't want anyone to know anything about them. And so in all my earliest relationships, somehow I figured out that if I asked everybody else a lot of questions, they wouldn't ask me any. <laughs> and my, and my uh, what I would now as an adult call, you know, shame would um, be, be able to be, you know, well-preserved. <laughs> so um, I developed this capacity with a genuine curiosity to learn about other people. And I think, you know, I naturally became sort of that confidant and um, I reveled in being able to support other people to create a really safe space to be really seen and heard and understood. Um, and so I think that really started to, you know, emerge there, the concept of sort of being a servant to others um, in, you know, in that way. So that was probably, Miriam, the earliest expressions of that kind of approach to navigating life. Um, you know, I, I, I say this a lot, but I think, you know, our biggest vulnerabilities can sometimes be our greatest strengths. Um, and that was obviously my my earliest vulnerability. That I, 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 When I became sort of, I think, 18 and 19, I started to realise that that wasn't healthy the way that I had, you know, was doing that and that the relationships weren't as um, nourishing to myself. So I decided to turn that more into a professional realm <laughs> rather than um, the way that I was navigating, you know, my relationships. So, yeah. Yeah, you took the second theme right out of my mouth, that the vulnerability into strength. And, I, I you know, again, uh, a theme that I, I constantly notice when I talk to you is this 
kind of the other side of what might be deemed as adversity. You know, what you might, you know, being able to have a, a, an adversity and see what it gave you. And, yeah, mm. I can really hear that in, in your mm. story. My, my second question, and I think this is particularly because we're exploring here you know, the, the soul's journey through work, and you mentioned the word calling. You know, there was a moment where there was a calling. Can you, can you tell us a story of what that was like and, and you know, how you perceived that? Yeah. So I, I had done about eight years in these, this hotel. I happened to work in at the time, the number one hotel at the time in Australia. And so it was a super high-profile role. I was super young. Like I was 17 when I first started working there and I had these very, very senior roles, like at 23 <laughs> I'm amazed. They had me on the hotel executive and everyone else was 30 years older than me. I was the only female and, you know, I'd, I had enormous responsibility and enormous pressure and it sort of had become, I guess, my identity to be able to be, you know, the concept of successful in those environments. Um, and <laughs> and the, I'll never forget just before I moved to live in Singapore, so this was the end of um, being in Australia and um, I... I had been ill for about six years at that point and um, they didn't know what it was. Um, I had debilitating symptoms. I'd had to have many months off, on and off of work because I couldn't work. And one of the experimental treatments was is I had to have intravenous injections three times a week and they would hope that that would improve my symptoms. And I found that it, it, it allowed me to work more. <laughs> and so um, I remember on one Friday night that I... Um, my doctor had waited to give me my injection for the Friday and um, I'd been late coming from work and I'd got there at I think 7.30 and he generously and kindly waited for me and he was doing the injection and the hotel paged me and this was back when you know it wasn't mobile phones and it wasn't even alpha um, paging it was numeric with a number and I somehow convinced this doctor <laughs> to walk with me from um, where he was injecting me on you know the bed to um, the phone and to die while he's still injecting me to dial the hotel because I thought it was going to be so important and um, he the hotel told me that um, the president of Konica which at the time was a very um, big you know company and the president of Konica wanted to play golf the next day and they wanted me to make sure I could get him onto the most prestigious golf course <laughs> And I hung up the phone and I looked at the doctor and he looked at me <laughs> and he's injecting me and he's finishing off the last part of the syringe. And I'm like, and I said it out loud to him, I said, isn't that interesting? You get paged if someone's going to die, like for life-threatening things. And I'm getting paged to book someone on a golf course on a Friday night and I'm making you, you know, it was just one of those pivotal, pivotal moments of this is all wrong. So I had had not long after that moved to live in Singapore and when I arrived in Singapore I actually got so ill that I was unable to work whatsoever. I couldn't spend any more than five minutes out of bed and they still didn't know what was wrong with me. So I'd now been very ill for I think six years and I was now completely debilitated. Um, and I wasn't able to work for close to one year. And um, I was in Singapore, I had, had relocated with my then partner. We'd broken up. Um, during that period and 
I didn't have any money, any friends, any family, and I was genuinely alone. That was way back in the day when, you know, email was only just becoming a thing. The World Wide Web wasn't a thing. There was no instant messaging or mobile phones with FaceTime. Um, you know, making an international phone call was a really big deal. So um, I was faced with figuring out whether I came back to Australia, but I'd found a, another experimental practitioner and she was looking really promising um, in terms of being able to help at least. And so I decided to stay in Singapore. And um, I, I was able to eventually make the five minutes that I could be out of bed a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And I could start to eventually read, but it was really hard to read the fatigue and that what was wrong with my brain was so severe that I um, was unable to read more than half a page and then I could read a page, then I could read two pages at a time and I built up. And during that time, I had a lot of silence and a lot of stillness and a lot of introspection. And I started to really think about my work and my career. And um, I was thinking about obviously my relationships and, and, and all the trauma that I've, I've alluded to that I went through in my childhood. And I realised that there was something unusual about my career that at such a young age I had all that responsibility and I was like why did that happen I didn't have experience I didn't know what I was doing but I was entrusted with so much trust from so many different people and I remembered I kept one thing from the hotel when I left and it was one you know those big cards that people give you when you leave a job it's the only job I've had um, and I got one of those massive big cards and everybody writes on it and you know all these different people wrote on the card and they were from you know room service or the bell desk or the wait staff or the front desk staff or you know senior executives and so on and there was a theme amongst everything that everyone wrote and they just said thank you for being the words they used my mentor my friend you helped me realize about myself you helped me so much and most of the people who worked in the hotel were migrants who had come from other countries they were engineers or doctors who brought their families to Australia who couldn't work in Australia because they didn't have the credentials early on. So they took these jobs and they're almost just the, the most ambitious people, as much as all of those same people that I was looking after who were the guests, you know, and they were so courageous more so because they'd come, you know, and they'd come to our country full of hope and full of possibility and full of, you know, and then they had to do work that wasn't their call, wasn't their calling and they were, they didn't find meaning in it and they weren't passionate and they, and they were struggling, you know. And then I'd have to come in and say, Pavarotti wants, you know, this thing or, or Andre Agassi wants this. And then Andre Agassi might not be so nice to them when, when, when you know, he was renowned for being putrid at that time. And he was rude, rude man. <laughs> he was terrible. But you saw all these sides of these people, right? And um, these beautiful human beings would bring in the very thing, the weird wacko thing that person needed immediately wouldn't even get that. You know what I mean? It was just all wrong, 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 wrong. And so when I look back over these cards, I saw... That, and I and then I I thought about I thought about the themes throughout and I thought about my childhood themes of 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 being able to listen and hear greatness in others and being able to help people curiously figure things out and what I realised had become my kind of I guess I, I wouldn't have called it at the time but my leadership style I think was to kind of get to know these people who worked in the hotel at a very human level, find out what their personal goals, what their ambitions were, and then help them to find meaning in their work and, and, and help them to pursue those things. And that was when coaching didn't exist as a field then. And, and I just kind of got this epiphany that that was my life, that was my calling, that was my unique talent. My talent was to be able to listen in a way that other people didn't listen and to facilitate people to listen to themselves, to be able to find meaning. And I realised that 
it was in, under the guise of being this, you know, hotel worker, um, you know, coordinating all these big groups and stuff. But in reality, that was the little talent. And, you know, that I remember when I first studied hotel school, I finished hotel school and they put me in the phone room. <laughs> I was like, the phone room? I shouldn't be in the phone room. I should be out, you know, meeting people. And they were like, oh, we think you're a bit young and a bit naive. We think you should be in the phone room. And I'm like, oh, what? Like I was so angry and resentful, like that's not the place for me. <laughs> and I had to like take a hundred phone calls an hour, you know. Um, and uh, but in reality, it was a perfect place for me, you know, listening. Um, and so, um, yeah. So when I was living in Singapore in the darkest, darkest hours of complete isolation, loneliness, no one around me except myself, and um, so challenged, I got that absolute realization, and that realization has never never dissipated, never left me. I know that's who I am. And through that incredibly difficult period of being forced into that type of silence, um, I could really hear myself, I guess. And um, I think that's where, and with that knowing, I can't tell you how meaningful and purposeful all the other challenges through life, because life hasn't necessarily been easy since. Um, There's had many moments that it has been, of course, but in in the future challenges, having that concept of, that just genuine knowing is, is I think I've learnt by working with so many other people was a real blessing. There are so many threads I want to kind of like follow down and I want to give Adam a chance just while we're here um, just to see before I kind of start down one of those threads just to see if, if you have anything to reflect on or to ask about, Adam. Yeah. Um... Well, I have a whole page of threads uh, here as I've been listening to you. Um, and the most immediate right now, um, hearing about the very difficult circumstances that took you into yourself and into the depths of, of who you are and your purpose. Um, I couldn't help but think about, and this is partially because we were working with this last week, the heroes or the, maybe the heroine's journey of going into the underworld meeting all the demons and the challenges there and finding finding the elixir to bring back for for your people for the world and i was curious um, in hearing how you brought that back to the world it sounds like you do a little bit of that for people you help them find find their elixir uh, what gives them meaning and a sense of purpose even if it's under another guise um you know, maybe they, the elixir is listening, but they find themselves in the hotel uh, management position and they're able to use that gift. So I wonder what you, for those that don't have the, I think, unfortunate benefit of having everything collapse around them so immediately and so strongly um, to be forced into the place inside that you were, um, how, you help, how you help people find that um, and then, and then have the courage to bring it back, the courage to keep keep going, to find that meaning and purpose, and then yeah. to to bring that back into the world, which, as you said earlier, is is a very vulnerable thing to do. It's a vulnerability to bring our bring our gifts to the world. So how do you how do you do that? And I and maybe some of yeah. your own experience. Um, how has your own experience taught you how to do that? 
Um, it's a big question, Adam. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm here uh, for. <laughs> <laughs> I love big questions. It's fun to be on the other side of them. <laughs> um, so back then I just realised the power of questions and that when you really do want to be of service to someone else, a question can really serve another person to explore parts of themselves or things that they never have really had the light shined on and, and then there's an awareness that comes that feeds on something else and when you genuine, genuinely are just curious about that with that person, not in a forceful way or even in a directive way but in a, in a curious way. So if you, if you think about for anyone listening who is in the field of supporting human development or leadership or growth or, or be even a manager, um, we know that we've got certain goals and objectives that we need to facilitate people to and lead them to or support them through, whatever that might be. And then there's a whole other area which is just a curious exploration, which is not very non-directive. And in that non-directiveness, there's this incredible alchemy and like creativity that kind of happens. And so I decided to call it a sort of channel originally that into what I started to call was coaching. And then a whole field started to emerge and then, you know, contributing to shaping that field to be that genuinely a facilitative field, making it different from other fields, which are much more directive. And so the, that concept of really being curious and exploring and, and inviting people to hear back their own their own words and, and feed them back and allowing their own words to cultivate the next part of the conversation and facilitating that is such a such an extraordinary experience to be on all sides of it. And it's so recharging and it's so intimate and it's so personal um, and um, it's so electrifying because you're literally in the presence of another person witnessing themselves for the very first time and it's such a it's like a birth it's a you know you know you think about the birth of a child and how extraordinary that is um you know for a midwife to like or a doctor to you know to, to birth this child and um every time someone has a new awareness it's kind of for me the same kind of concept and it's so such a privilege I just can only think of it as a privilege and so then when someone then realizes that and then that goes out into the world and shapes them as a parent or as a leader or as a friend or as just a human being I think the ripple effects in the world are so significant so so it's been around that Adam it's around uh, uh, practicing that and you know I then went on to kind of write some books to try and quantify that a bit and help others to figure out the tools to do that and then I um, co-developed with Dr. Michael Hall a whole uh, coach training methodology and a whole set of competencies and a whole set of skills and all of these things to try and teach other people these skills, which we did. And that was another eight years of, of body of work simultaneously as running my own business in that space as well. Um, and then I kind of realised that, I don't know, it's not really skill. I mean, it is definitely skills. I'm not undermining those skills. And those skills are super important part of the process and everyone who's in that path should explore those skills 100%. But I think it's not about skills. It's sort of about a state and it's a state of love. And so I think, and, and that sounds really esoteric and it sounds really fluffy and it sounds really vague, but that state of, of genuinely being, and it's and it's not about, being love even it's just about 
being in the in the moment of whatever's happening in the moment and that being a creative force of recognition and of love and of honour and of just honouring and then through that something happens, whether it be cathartic and be healing or whether it be generative that creates new things in the world, it's the seed that creates create the future. And so I've, I've ended up in the spaces of working with like what I call our kind of creative artists. They're the people that I most enjoy working with. I mean, I enjoy working with everyone, but creative artists are the one that, ones that are courageous enough to invent things that never existed before, which might be philosophies or poetry or art or technology or um, tools or, you know, all those sorts of things that, you know, anthropologically create our future. And there needs to be a special space that allows people to step into how are we going to invent the way that, you know, work's done in the future? How are we going to invent the way that, you know, religion is done in the future? Whatever it is. Um, and so they're the kinds of spaces that I enjoy working in because you can't direct that. You, there's no uh, formula for that. There is no recipe for how you do that. It, it requires a different space, different sorts of questions, and it requires the person, whatever you call them, coach, facilitator, whatever, that person let's not give them a label to act in a way that creates the space for that to occur. So they're the spaces that I've, I, I enjoy. I, I want to chime in here just really briefly before we come back to Adam because everything that you said um, reminds me of our story together um, when we first met. And I remember when we first met, um, one of the things that really struck me about your story that I kind of was like, oh, I really want to meet this woman, was I had this feeling of here is a person who's met death, who's travelled through death and found life. And I was like, what, what, what is that like? And the memory that sticks out for me actually all these many, many, many years later, you know, we brought you in to do business work, you know, the work of business, business transformation. But what really stands out that's now the thread that I think is so major in We Are Open Circle and in my life is what you noticed is is actually um, we did the we did it downstairs if you remember down at Mum's house and we brought all the people down there in that big studio and yeah. you first noticed all the nature around and then I I said let's go on a walk and we walked in nature and I never forget your reflection of like do you where do you go and reflect is it in the nature or you know is it in nature and you know I noticed this walk and and it. And as I've thought about those moments of you reflecting back my relationship with nature and how nature for me is a place where I could feel and find and create from and how much, you know, this is a part of We're Open Circle and a part of our work and a part of, a part of drawing on that state of love from, being, from, from actually being, you know, that state of being that comes from for me and I think for so many of us from from reconnecting with nature and um and so the thing about that was that what you caught it was a it was questions and it was curiosity there was so much about what was on the periphery not was not what was you know in in the center the thing you're meant to be doing you go just look at this look at this theme and and I think at the time I didn't even realize it but now retrospectively I really see how that was the kind of the beginning of a realization of oh this thing which I I didn't even consciously know was there but had been there with me for my whole life so um 
yeah, that's just my little story with, with you. And there's so many other aspects to that, but that's mm. just the little thread. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. My, uh, my takeaway or the realization I got from your answer, um, first, you'd be surprised how many people talk about love. Maybe it's because we, pro we prompt them with the, <laughs> the work is love. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, we sort of create our reality here a little bit. But, yeah. um, but as you were talking, what stood out for me as, as a realization was that, that love and not knowing go together that to create that future through love that it requires you to not know, not to control what's going to happen, but to plant seeds. Like who knows whether the seed's going to grow or what the tree's going to look like, or if it's going to, if the tomato plant's going to make good tomatoes yeah. or what, but that love and not knowing go hand in hand. And it, it made me understand something about our work, which I don't think I, I could understand. Um, until I heard your story and and the way that you you make meaning of it, so mm. not knowing and love. Mm. I'm just I'm just feeling into that. That's a beautiful reflection, Adam. Um, yeah, it's a funny thing in the world how we're so conditioned in our systems to know, and 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 there's so much anxiety most people have with not knowing. And when I and I have the opposite anxiety, probably equally as strongly as others might have around the other, around I get anxious when I'm meant to know. <laughs> you know, when I'm meant to be when I'm meant to be the one who is meant to know something. Um, when there's meant to be a right way, like a textbook way, do you know what I mean? Like um, and and I think in part, you know, that vulnerability for me is is I've surrounded with my people who are comfortable being in that space of the not knowing and creating the new things more than, you know, people who, who, who want it to be a precise, um, you know, a protocol way. You know, I, I remember working in hotels, we would host, you know, as I was saying, presidents and dignitaries and there was lots of cultural um, and uh, protocol, do you know what I mean? The, the government would come with protocol of what you're meant to do that's the cultural, the right way to do it. <laughs> super scary because you know you've got to get that right to be respectful and and i would it would be it would feel really important to me because it's a way of honoring do you know what i mean when you know someone's principles and their protocols you got to do the right thing but i would find it super hard super hard to do it um and i'd always get in trouble because i'd say the wrong thing you know you're not meant to ask people how their day was and you're not meant to do this thing and you're certainly not meant to ask the wife of the dignitary um, oh, you went shopping. Oh, where did you go? <laughs> that was wrong. <laughs> um, and so on and so on. So it's a it's a funny it's a funny funny dichotomy. Kind of thinking. Oh, Adam, did you have anything else before? No, I, you're you're the lead here. I'm just the yeah. I'm just the third. So <laughs> of course I could. There's so much here. But I know there's but... so much here. We'll we'll come back to more threads. I I want to kind of follow that a little bit. Because one of the, the, the things that I, I was hearing was a, a constant interaction with people of success and ambition. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, these two things, there's a constant interaction in your field and in your life with success and ambition, and then this kind of democratization and this pulling the elixir out. And so just starting with you know, I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between those two things and also really interested in what you learned 
about success and ambition and its relationship to 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 your to where, what your work became. Um, well, I think another big question. I think um, I learned that those who this was early on, so it's such a rare experience. 17, 18, 19, 20, and twenty-one to my work to be working with literally whoever, whatever the field was, the top of the field and, and seeing them in those vulnerable, raw, unplugged states. Um, what I learned was is that they had a lot of help. And so they had entourages of, you know, they would travel with family and friends. They would travel with sports therapists, nutritionists, you know, designers, like that's they're just this incredible entourage of help. And so what I learned was is that people who are at whatever the top of whatever their field is, they have a lot of help. Like they're able to do a lot of things. They're able to have a lot of impact because they are able to have a lot of help. And later on I learned I didn't have the eyes to be able to discern it at such a young age. I later on learned that they were able to receive that help and welcome that help in and they accepted that help. And that that allowed that whatever was their raw talent, it allowed their talent to flourish. Um, and and so then when I started to work professionally with people as a coach to facilitate their own unique talents, what I got to witness and understand was is very often some people would be obtunded because they'd get to a point where they 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 didn't weren't able to to em embrace the the concept of others being involved in what they were doing and and that allowing them to embrace their talent and realise it to its greatness, if that makes sense. Um, and so that could be from an entrepreneur not able to raise capital or it could be from an athlete not able to, um, you know, get the right support around them to, to get the right coach that could hone their whatever it was. Um, so that's one of the key things was, and, and I'm still realising in my own journey of being able to really that are the, just the in, infinite abundance of getting access to the best in the world of whatever it is. Um, and so welcoming that in and um, being able to have that. So that's, I think, one area. Um, I went on to do a study, an actual formal study, actually. So I, um, I, I noticed that I was working with a lot of entrepreneurs and I was working with entrepreneurs who were selling their businesses for multi-hundreds of millions of dollars, even multi-billions of dollars. Um, and then I was working with a lot of other people who were going bankrupt or struggling to raise capital or to get their business to the next stage. And I was actually working with the founders and their teams. And I, I, I got super curious because in, in our work, um, I've just, I'm going to completely contradict myself. I've just said how I like the not knowing and everything else, but we do all this evidence-based um, stuff as well. Um, so there's a part of me that really wants to make the invisible visible. So in this space where there is this not knowing, once there is some threads that come, I, I like to help make it visible to others and to bring credibility to things so that the rest of the world can benefit from them. So this is, I guess, one aspect of those things. So we did this welfare study where we got a group of these exceptionally successful startup founders and we did this what's called correlational analysis to see was there any link between people's attitudes and motivations and their business outcomes. And we found it was a proper academic study um, over multiple years and we published the results and we found significant findings and then we spent four and a half years with that data and those findings applying it to over a thousand case studies to see well if people knew about their own attitudes and motivations in business 
and they knew which ones were blind spots and which ones would help them thrive, would it improve their business outcomes? And for anyone who doesn't know, 90, 98% of businesses fail. They, you know, 60% fail in the first three years. It's one of the hardest things to do in the world, sadly. Um, and we found over those 1,000 case studies that it had a massive impact. Um, so then that's what ended up me transitioning into raising money myself and learning from my own studies um, to be able to um, create technologies that, you know, started to help people to do that. And so what we learned was is there were certain attitudes and motivations that um, aligned with being successful in a certain field and that our, our minds and our motivations are really malleable and that those things can be shifted and adjusted and changed and that nothing's fixed. You know, in psychology, there was a belief that personality was this fixed concept and that you are statically this person, which is why I hate, you know, MBTI and some of those personality tools, which are fun and useful for understanding difference. But the the, the thing that's not so great is, is that they come with the premise that you are this way and it keeps people boxed in thinking that they can't grow, evolve, be flexible, adaptable. And what the body of work that's emerged today and anyone who's doing research in this space knows today is, is that there's neuroplasticity, that these things evolve and change and that we can consciously work on these things. And so my body of work kind of moved into that area of helping people to, with the tools to be able to do some of that as well. Okay, give us the magic sauce. We're all, <laughs> what's the magic sauce? What's the thing? What's the, well, what are the, the attributes? <laughs> well, in, in, in the startup space, what we learned was is that the, a motivation or an attitude for what we call proactivity initiation was one of the highest correlation, correlated findings. So um, initiation is the speed at which you take an idea and you take your first actions on it. Um, so it might be you got an idea for something and you reach out to a person to, you know, make a phone call to have a conversation about it or you book a meeting or you start a project or you um, do the next step in the next step. And we found those who were able to achieve the levels of success I just spoke about are really quick. They have what's called high self-efficacy. They don't feel like they need to know everything. So they're able to step into that space of not knowing, taking the first step and trusting that they'll figure out what the next step is and what the next step is. And um, that's correlated with, you know, moving quickly. So when we talk about hustle, you know how you, anyone who's in a startup space that talks about hustle, that's what hustle actually ironically is. People think it's this thing about being forceful and just pushing hard. It's actually, I mean, it might look like that, but it's actually just stepping into a space of not knowing, you know, and taking the next step and the next step and being courageous enough to do that without reflecting on it and pausing and waiting for the right time to act. So we found that high amounts of what we measure in our technology, um, anyone can measure this, um, is um, high initiations correlate with more rounds of venture capital, correlated with bigger sizes of exits when people sell their businesses, correlated with larger companies, um, which is known as scale in a startup space and those sorts of things. We also found that something that's called big picture thinking. So big picture thinking is uh, how much do you like detail? How much do you like to be abstract um, and do that, you know, global thinking. And we found that global big picture abstract thinking was a correlated with more ambition. So people who have um, a bigger picture focus had like global ambitions and they set up businesses from day one to be global versus those who are more concrete and more specific had more localised kinds of businesses. Um, we also found that they um, were more visionary. Um, so they're able to communicate their ideas more visionary. They're more able to prioritise what's important to focus on. 
Um, and we found, again, correlated with more rounds of venture capital, larger companies, bigger size exits and so on. So those are the two that had the biggest amount of correlations. But we also found that had some that have what we would call potentially a negative correlation, which we call our blind spots. And so these are kind of cool because they're the opposite to what everyone in a corporate's taught or what you're taught at university. And that is um, that a high focus on detail, that's concrete, specifics, perfecting things, excuse me, that's correlated with early stage venture failure. So that's like spending too much time perfecting something before you've got it out and validated it, do you know what I mean? Or you just put it in front of people and then you, you know, then you'll improve it and iterate it. So there's a beautiful quote from Reid Hoffman, um, founder of one of the founders of LinkedIn, um, saying that, you know, if you're not embarrassed when you ship your product or whatever the quote goes, um, you've shipped too late. And so that really embodies that concept of wanting to perfect things, do you know what I mean? Uh, and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and then you burn up all your money or whatever, do you know what I mean? So a high focus on detail correlated with early stage venture failure and then um, a high focus on structure. So structure is planning and organising all the resources, organising all the parts, um, all of those things. And, um, you know, the traditional concept of a business plan and all that stuff is structure, right? And we found high structure is also correlated with early stage venture failure. And so there's this bias of wanting to structure things. So often very technical people want to structure or people who come from a corporate background, you know, in a corporate, you're, you're, you know, in an enterprise environment, you are, you know, structure is very important to socialising your ideas and getting to getting buy-in and um, detail, you know, it's hammered into you to be very detail-orientated even if it's not serving anyone. So um, these things are the antithesis of this, the early-stage startup mindset. Um, so they're just a couple of the findings that we found. Oh, that's brilliant. I now feel validated in all of my mistakes and <laughs> validated in all of my planning. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, started, I was focusing on the 98% failure five minutes ago and now I can see that we might actually make it through the needle to the other side and I want every per participant in any of our programs to listen to this podcast uh, before they before they give us any feedback <laughs> and and also um, to make sure all of our staff current past and future <laughs> have a chance to listen to that but that's, so but, that's the, but that's the thing right is is that if you come from an enterprise background and you go into a startup or enterprises are attempting to bring innovative entrepreneurial thinking into an organization this is the friction that we end up getting is it's the very mindset that they're wanting to bring and, and to proliferate um, is obtunded by the fear and the mindset of, of you know we've got to be precise and all of those sorts of things which you know as a startup our research found is that as a startup moves into what these days is kind of called a scale-up we see detail-oriented instruction does start to go up because now you need it for the scale right um, and very often a startup it's the place where they fail so part of our research looked at early stage ventures and then these scale up ventures and then we also did a, a study um, just a couple of years ago a global study where we looked at founders in 55 cities um, we got to look at the cultural differences so we're like we were looking at the ecosystem of like Silicon Valley versus you know Berlin versus versus you know New York Sydney all these different regions around the world and we got to see that some places, for example, in um, like Asia, um, they were much, much higher culturally on detail and structure and procedures, which is very much their education system is that they teach that way. And it's really attending them, you know, overall in terms of birthing more and more successful startups 
And so in various different parts of the world, they find our data super helpful because it illuminates this, right? And then they can help, you can, because like we were just saying, this is all adaptable and flexible. Um, we can shift this and change. It's not always going to be easy if it was really ingrained. Do you know what I mean? If you had a pair, if you had a tiger mum mom or dad uh, um, who's like beating into you, you've got to do this this way, it's going to be harder to shift than if you were brought up in, you know, a Montessori school. <laughs> I um I I I will provide links to this research, which is really really important research. And I just want to go back a little bit because I have a kind of curiosity about, you know, that that very proactive, quick, you know, hustle that you're talking about. Of um, how does in your work with with entrepreneurs and also with kind of in this area. How does that equate to that year you spent in deep reflection where you got the essence of what your calling was? Like, you know, what I really received from that story was about the value of letting things fall apart and, and having time of silence and listening. Um, and so how do those two things fit together? In, and this is less the research and more in your experience. Or it could yeah. be the research, both. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well... It's really interesting that I think there are two different types of sort of founders. There are founders who are motivated by business itself and they're really excited about any idea that they think might be useful and they get behind that and they might be more of a serial entrepreneur where they do business after business and they, you know, part of our research found that people, some people are motivated only by a certain period of time and then they get, if they stick with something too long, they actually get burnt out because their need for novelty and newness um, is, you know, exceeded and that's what causes burnout for them and that they need to go on and do something else that's new. And so that sort of style of founder isn't necessarily motivated by a hardcore mission that drives their life, do you know what I mean? But if you think about like a Steve Jobs or you think about, um, you know, my mission, um, my mission is permeated through all the different businesses I've had. It's the same mission, but it, the mission itself is reflected in different ways. And that's, I think, to your point, Miriam, because I have such deep contact with mission, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but you do find some very mission-led founders who have a very, very strong mission of what they want to do in the world. And then they, they usually are the ones that go on to, to, to stay with that mission even after the business, you know, that they've been in or they stay in that business for a very long period of time. So I think um, it, it can be both. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have another line of questioning. So, Adam, I want to leave another gap before I go down that line uh, for you to, to provide some reflection and, and questions. Well, what I, what I heard, what stands out for me is the, the importance of difference, you know, making the right choices at the right time for someone I'm thinking about our own experience of hiring people really looking, you know, unless we're ready to develop them into entrepreneurs or to develop that entrepreneurial spirit to recognize, you know, the, the thin line between needing to know or thinking that they need to know and not knowing and, and being able to kind of come in iterating, you know, being able to, to not be embarrassed by small mistakes, to move quickly, um, not pushy, but, but to have both of those and and as we grow and as we we become more as businesses grow to start to think about those kind of stabilizing forces um and that both are, are important um 
and that fits in the everything belongs kind of you know everything belongs in in, yeah. in the world and the system and and that we each find our own way and i think we have that privilege as as business owners to um to be able to see that in someone and, and help them find the right spot um and also when they see when they want to grow and to develop and and give them a spot that might be a little bit out of their reach um right now but to, that helped help lift them up a little bit um so the okay yeah the line of investigation i have is a, a term that you used a few times which is around being a servant um and of course servant leadership is a thing you know and i didn't read it as you know a thing of servant leadership but i did hear that no. that word and and you know so often when i've when i've heard that word servant and being a servant of others um i always wonder about how that interacts with um with boundaries and with you know how do you serve in a way that serves others and live that and and when you have such a strong mission and feel called to such a strong mission and still look after yourself and um look like how how does What's your experience of that, and and what does what does being a servant mean to you, and what what are the the the, the lessons hard and you know the hard lessons I guess, and and others yeah. that you learn? Yeah, um, I think it's a really interesting question, Miriam. It's got lots of different facets around how we can answer it. I think my desire to be a service came out of trauma. Um, so I think, um, as I, I mentioned, that it was initially because I had these difficulties as a child that I wanted to kind of avoid being in the spotlight. And so it became much easier for me to be a servant to um, somebody else's story because it was distracting, it was exciting, it took me out of myself. Um, it was wonderful to be in someone else's world. Um, and it was a, a, a way to alleviate my own discomfort and my own pain for a period of time. Um, so I think that's where it was actually birthed. Um, and then as I kind of realised I had some really kind of cool skills, I guess, <laughs> that got birthed out of that, I decided to develop those skills further and make that more of a professional kind of approach and then really then to work on how I could be more present and more vulnerable and more open myself so that I was, you know, rounding myself out more, realising that, that that was kind of a bit of a, a tundered development in myself, if you know what I mean. So, so then, you know, exploring that aspect of it. Um, and then I mentioned that I was really, you know, obviously ill in that early stages for many years. Um, I was living in Singapore at the time and prior to that for the years in Australia. I, I got well for after that period for about seven years and then... Um, I got married and uh, a few months after that, I got very, very ill again. I got so ill that I got um, a diagnosis that I had six months before I'd be deaf, blind and mute and two years before the diseases that I had would be fatal. And I finally had got a diagnosis to all of those diseases that I'd never been properly diagnosed on before, um, that I... Uh, had three autoimmune diseases. So I had cerebral vasculitis, which is where my immune system was eating up the frontal lobes of my brain. And then I had systemic lupus, which was um, where the autoimmune was in the tissue of my lungs and in my kidneys. 
and I had antiphospholipid syndrome, which is a blood clotting autoimmune disease. And um, I was having seizures. I had palsy down the right side of my body. I had debilitating, debilitating pain. I had just, as I say, got married, but I'd also just gone from expanding my coaching firm from myself to taking on board 15 team members um, literally at the same time. And the business model was based around me being able to bring the income in initially for that. So it was an exceptionally um, difficult time because for those who don't know about autoimmune diseases, there's more than 80 different autoimmune diseases. And uh, ironically, 80% of people who suffer from autoimmune diseases are women. And because um, mostly in the field of and examples of autoimmune diseases are type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, um, rheumatoid arthritis, and the ones I mentioned. Um, and so the, at the moment in medicine, and that, that was um, a long time ago now, um, they didn't know and they still don't know what causes an autoimmune disease. So they don't know the structure of how it's caused, so therefore they don't know how to really cure them. So they've got some drugs that kind of help some of the chronic diseases, but the ones I had, the one that was so aggressive in the brain, there was no way to halt it or stop it. And so it took uh, five months to get diagnosed. I got misdiagnosed with a brain tumour, um, all these different things due to, the, due to what it was. But when I actually finally got the diagnosis, I can't tell you how excited I was, <laughs> I finally was given the structure of what was going on in my body all of those years and from my philosophies of, of healing and so on that, um, that you know, my body's got a dysfunction, I can help it to go back to a homeostasis to natural healing, you know, like to its natural ability. So when I learnt the structure, the structure of an autoimmune disease is right in the space of what you're talking about, Miriam, is an autoimmune disease is... is a healthy functioning immune system, everybody's cell has a little flag on it that says that is a Miriam cell, that's an Adam cell. And then when a foreign invader comes in, a virus or a bacteria, the immune system goes to kill the virus or the bacteria and it doesn't hurt your own cells because it has a little flag on it that says a Miriam or an Adam cell. Um, and so in my cells, in my brain and in, in those parts of my body, the cells didn't have the flag on them to say I'm a shell cell. And so as I started to pick this all apart, um, I started to do some very analytical tracking. So I had this spreadsheet um, and I was tracking every single symptom that I had and then tracking biological things from food to chemicals to in, then emotional things, interactions, experiences I was having um, to mental things and spiritual things and tracking the symptoms to see if I could find any, any again, that kind of evidence-based correlations. And um, I started to find some really interesting patterns. And the patterns um, I noticed um, were in situations where I felt in vulnerable situations of, of conflict um, and where I didn't feel like I was safe. And inside of those, what we realised was is that I felt kind of invisible. And there was a metaphor of that sadly, that I, in that servant role, had also made myself invisible in certain, in certain contexts. And so by being able to heal that in myself, I was able to heal that at a cellular level. And my doctors had, had prescribed for me to have chemotherapy. They didn't think it would uh, save my life, but they had hoped that it would slow down the progression in the brain and that it might give me longer than two years before I'd die. And um, 
and I said no to the chemotherapy um, because it was going to make me infertile and I decided I was going to live. Um, and so, you know, at the time, everyone said, you know, you're about to die. You should give up your business. You shouldn't do your work. You And I'm like, but I'm not going to die. And, and, and so I was very resolute inside of myself that I knew it wasn't my time to die. And I just, I, so I took on board the understanding of the diagnosis because the information was super helpful. So I didn't deny the diagnosis because it was super helpful to have the diagnostics, to measure that it was improving, to know the structure now of how the disease worked. Because once I knew that, I could start to work internally on making the shifts inside of myself um, so that then my body could go back to a healthy functioning state. And um, I, don't, I don't know if everyone knows this, but when you have antibodies in your body, um, there's certain type of antibodies that never disappear. Um, and they said that once you show antibodies against yourself, you'll always show antibodies and you'll never be able to get to it on the blood tests and the brain scan. So I had to have these awful anti-nuclear brain scans where they pump your brain full of radiation, like nuclear radiation and you're radioactive for three days. It was just full on. And, and the symptoms of that it had caused other, other biological problems with my hormones and my thyroid and all sorts of consequences from just the diagnostics. Um, but I had to be tested every month and every few months then progressively until I was able to get no evidence whatsoever of any autoimmune activity in my body whatsoever um, since 2007. So, um, so it took around five years to do that um, and it was predominantly working on a whole lot of things to retrain the immune system but also being able to make, um, you know, being able to make identification, being able to be visible, not being invisible, um, not only being the servant, Miriam, and um, figuring out to be, you know, identified, so to speak. And so it, that's still a, a work in progress for me, but it's pretty, pretty, pretty good now, pretty strong. Thank you so much for sharing that amazing story. Um, I, I, it's such in your story there are such visceral visceral examples of your work you know it, it, it's 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 like this visceral and i think this is why i called you a storyteller or your life as as a story that kind of viscerally um and magnifies your work or what it's about like the visceral story of the bed in singapore for a year and the calling coming through that adversity and the visceral story in this of the, the kind of interconnection that you found in, in your work of the way that, you know, mind, body, spirit, emotions are all working together and that, you know, you can't discount that in, in coming back to health. Um, and the way that you worked with the systems as they are, again, this kind of theme that, you know, yes, not knowing and also when I, when I learn something, it's like making the invisible visible. The way that in this, in this journey with your disease, you you took the invisible and made it visible and, and highlighted it. Um, and, yeah. Well, another, just... another piece on that, Miriam, was, and, and it wasn't me alone because at the same time I just published two books and um, even though I was as ill as I was, we were still taking the coaching methodology from the books to new countries. And I remember standing on a stage with my co-author and my co-developer of the coach training system, Michael Hall, and I would start speaking. And part of the problem with the disease was that it was attacking the frontal lobes of the brain. So I could suddenly be speaking, completely forget what I was speaking about. 
and it would be very hard to be on the stage. But I'd made this decision that 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 when I'm when I'm supporting others and doing the coaching, I could only do half a day a week, um, and if I did speak, it would wipe me out for a month. Um, but when I did speak and I shared on the stage that I had this brain disease and that I might forget what I'm saying, people were forgiving. But at the end of these little speeches that I would do, which weren't necessarily related at all to the disease, they're about coaching and the models and the stuff we were teaching, but inadvertently people would line up at the end of the talk and wait for a long time to speak to me and they would tell me that they had autoimmune diseases and I ended up with a cohort of 70 people around the world who had autoimmune diseases that couldn't be cured. And so I started studying not just my own structures, but they started within this group that we created, their own structures, and we found 21 different characteristics that we all had that we all shared, and they're all in the same kind of vein of what I just described. And their symptoms started to get better, and some people who, who were diligent with it went on to actually fully cure their diseases as well. And so it's like there's a seed of something in there that can really help this whole, you know, field. Um, and it's an area that I'm particularly passionate about. Um, but exactly that, Miriam, is that if we can, all of us, I think, is, is if we can learn from each other and, and, and see these commonalities and look for these patterns, um, we can learn so much more. To, you know, there's so much more together than apart. You know, and that's a cliche that's overused in the world, but it's actually so true. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and and only I can imagine a state of love would have brought you up on that stage to do those speeches. Um, only that state of being in which you were in service to your calling and in service. Yes, I felt like I had to do it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I couldn't take it away because then it was like, well, why live? Do you know what I mean? So, so I had to have a reason to live. So that was a really strong decision in myself. I mean, I remember the the specialist. He's the the uh, professor of neurology, who's super well known in, in in the region for you know brain diseases. And he slammed his hand down on the table and looked me in the eyes and yelled at me because he thought I was in denial. He says, "You're dying. You are dying." And he thought that I was, um, you know, in denial. And I'm like. No, 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 I, I'm listening to you. I'm like, I'm listening to you, but I'm just not listening to that bit. Um, and, and, I just, and, and, and he was very frustrated because he couldn't describe the cure or why it happened. And so every time I asked questions, he would get really angry because he didn't have the answers. Can you imagine being a doctor working in the realm with all these ill people all the time who are dying and not having the answers? And so he and I got into this biffo and it was really intense between us. But I had made the decision, it's my life. I get to decide. I get to choose. I'm going to find my solutions and you're going to be a servant to me, not me serving you and just doing what the doctor says. Do you know what I mean? So I made that really strong advocate decision, which I really encourage anyone to do with their own health when they're facing such serious, serious ramifications of biology that's gone, you know, um, confused, is that they become their own advocate and that they really, you know, and it was part of my healing for someone else to serve me. Does that make sense as well? So, um, So it was kind of that you know, shifting and changing of that. Yeah, and again, in the adversity came the Alexa, you know, yeah. Okay, my last piece. I feel like we could end there, but I, I want to name a thread that I heard. Excuse me for a second. Um, 
I love in Michelle in the in the few the examples that you've given us of sort of pattern tracking, you know, studying what makes an entrepreneur successful or a business successful. Um, that for number one, it started from your own your own exploration of life and death. Um, and then that you've gone out and collected wisdom from groups and that even in the collecting the wisdom of the groups with the, in the autoimmune, um, in the, in, in the realm of the autoimmune, it was actually in the collection and in the learning from each other that there was, there was healing. It almost sounds like in itself, just knowing that you don't, that you're not alone. It sounded like that. And for so many people, um, and of course, you know, big picture thinking here, of course, um, thinking about <laughs> the limitations of science and the limitations of the individual, the individual under the microscope, um, or the individual looking out with the telescope to the world, um, that where, where science is failing, collectives are finding the answers. Um, yeah. I read a book recently, Tribe, um, I, I keep, I bring it up in almost every meeting that we have some at some point around PTSD <laughs> and um, the U U.S. military and how PTSD is a symptom of isolation, not a symptom of war in, in this um, person's perspective. And um, mm. yeah, I just hear that thread of like where, where, where our current paradigms of science and business school methodologies fail, collectives are finding answers and, and you seem like a pioneer intuitively maybe i'm not sure if you uh but or you have been intuitive about it and, and finding your way um and making that way for others so those are my witness comments i hope they're, I hope they're useful in some way thank you and 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 also there was a lot of nods from michelle just for the viewers as adam was talking and i also want to end on um and there's no way that we could cover this, but to thank you for the step of of moving into starting your own uh, your own journey in the entrepreneurial journey, and for uh, what I have witnessed is the hard work um, and journey of democratizing what you've learned, so that it can be available to so many people. Um, please check out Michelle's website; you will see it. Um, it's amazing work um, and, and um, I know it's already and will continue to serve so many people. So thank you so much for following your calling, for um, fighting and finding, uh, for fighting and also for not fighting the adversity and letting the elixir come so that it can serve us all. Well, it's, thank you both. It's been a beautiful conversation and I'm always uncomfortable when the spotlight's on me and um, it's been very comfortable to talk with you both. So thank you for the questions and I'm certain the exploration will continue to resonate in me from your questions. So thank you. Thank you.